You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, Real Paranormal Activity is proud to present Terry's Mysterious Moments. Welcome to Season 2 of Terry's Mysterious Moments. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you find something interesting. Or maybe something spooky. Or maybe something just... Mysterious. Good evening, everyone. This is Terry from Texas with Terry's Mysterious Moments. Tonight I want to talk about an interesting phenomenon from the Germanic areas of Europe and some of Northern England. And it's a phenomenon called Radiant Boys. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but I've heard of them a long time ago when I first started really reading about ghost stories and things and like I said it's a paranormal phenomenon peculiar to Middle Europe or Germany and the areas in the north of England. Radiant boys are supposedly the ghosts of boys who have been murdered by their mothers. Radiant boys feature in the folklore of England and Europe and may trace their origin to the I'm going to try this German word. I don't pronounce German all that well, so please forgive me if I slaughter it. Kinder Mordorinen, which translates to child murderesses or children murdered by their mothers. And it's of Germanic lore. Children murdered by their parents became a prominent theme in ghost folklore in the 1700s. Considering the fact that mothers who were seduced and abandoned would not have wanted the disgrace of a child out of wedlock or others not able to provide for their offspring sometimes sadly led to the desperate act of murder. Some also point to the medieval law where second wives could inherit their husband's property if all his children had passed away. Hence, stepmothers had an incentive to get rid of their stepchildren. Fairy tales written at the time reflect this theme. Think about Sleeping Beauty, but you can also think of Snow White, Cinderella, different ones. 
These spirits or ghosts are called radiant boys in England because they glow brightly when they appear. They are described as being young boys who have blonde hair and are often described as almost being on fire. These apparitions appear briefly and then just fade away. They were most often seen in Cumberland and Northumberland in the northern part of England. This area had many German immigrants who came to find work during the late 18th and early 19th centuries at the height of the Industrial Revolution. It is believed that the Germans passed on their beliefs and fascination with kinder mortarin to the British. Most of the sightings of radiant boys were recorded during this period. Impressive Corby Castle in Cumberland is said to be haunted by a small, glimmering spirit known as the Radiant Boy. His origins are uncertain, but he has been reported for over 200 years in a room in part of the old house adjoining an old Roman tower. His most famous appearance took place on 8th September 1803. A family named Howard owned Corby Castle at the time and had planned several days of fellowship with friends. The rector of Greystoke and his wife were among a number of guests who planned to stay several days but after just one night they announced that they would be leaving. There was much work done in attempting to persuade the rector and his missus but they were adamant they must leave right then and out the door they scooted mounting their carriage and off down the drive they went lickety-split. The sudden and unexplained departure of the rector and his wife was the source of consternation until some days later after the other guests had been entertained for several days and had all by then taken their leave of the Howard's hospitality. Mr. Howard went to see the rector at Greystoke. Upon receiving an incredibly and somewhat perplexing warm welcome, he got to the business at hand. He asked the rector what had occurred at Corby Castle to cause his headlong flight away from it. The rector confessed to the owner of the house his reason for leaving with this story. Quoting the rector, Soon after we went to bed, we fell asleep. It might have been between one and two in the morning when I awoke. I observed that the fire was totally extinguished, but although that was the case and we had no light, I saw a glimmer in the center of the room, which suddenly increased to a bright flame. I looked out, apprehending that something had caught fire, when, to my amazement, I beheld a beautiful boy, clothed in white, with bright locks resembling gold standing by my bedside, in which position he remained for some minutes, fixing his eyes upon me with a mild and benevolent expression. He then glided away gently toward the side of the chimney, where it is obvious there is no possible egress, and entirely disappeared. I found myself again in total darkness, and all remained quiet until the usual hour of rising. 
I declare this to be a true account of what I saw at Corby Castle, upon my word as a clergyman. When the rector had barely begun his story, Mr. Howard suddenly clued in as to the reason of the sudden leaving. You've seen the radiant boy. The rector was astounded that Mr. Howard knew of the ghost and did not share the story. But in Mr. Howard's defense, he was unaware of the room given to the rector and his wife. Nothing bad seemed to happen to the rector of Greystoke, for he was still repeating the tale twenty years later. Another famous encounter with a radiant boy occurred in the last years of the 18th century to a man called Captain Robert Stewart. There are different versions of the story, but all seem to gel on the basic idea of the story. Captain Stewart was out hunting while stationed in Ireland, and when he was caught in a terrible storm, he sought shelter at a country gentleman's house and was given a makeshift bed to sleep in beside a roaring fire. He wasn't given a proper bedroom because the house is already full of guests and other travelers who had been caught in the storm. The servant that bedded him into this room built a raging fire, just huge fire in the fireplace. And in order to go to sleep, Captain Stewart had to take some of the logs off the fire in order to let the fire calm down a bit. When he did lay down, he was so tired from hunting, he went to sleep pretty quickly. When all of a sudden, just a while after he had gone to sleep, he awoke abruptly and saw gradually showing itself the form of a beautiful naked boy surrounded by a dazzling brilliance. The boy looked at him earnestly and then the vision faded and the room was dark. When Stuart told the owner of the house what he had seen, the gentleman explained that the room was haunted by the radiant boy and that anyone who saw him would obtain great power but would die a violent death at the height of his fame and influence. Captain Robert Stuart later became Lord Castlereagh, second Marquess of Londonderry due to the death of his older brother. He entered the British House of Commons, becoming Chief Secretary of Ireland and later Secretary of State and Foreign Secretary. In his later years, Lord Castlereagh feared he was going mad and in April of 1822, depressed by overwork and many responsibilities, he cut his own throat with a penknife and died. Castlereagh's rise and fall is often cited as an example of the curse of the radiant boy, even though it took three decades to come to fruition. On a side note, a version of the story of Captain Stewart come Lord Castlereagh and Second Marquess of Londonderry is not so genteel as to the reason for the appearance of the radiant boy to Stewart. There are some social historians that said that Robert Stewart was gay, thus the solitary appearance of the radiant boy naked rather than robed in white. It further states that due to his socially unacceptable lifestyle, he was the victim of blackmail, and thus he took his own life. The famous or infamous author Edward Bulwer-Lytton 
claimed that the house Lord Castlereagh stayed at was Nebworth, which is the seat of the Lytton family. Bulwer Lytton had his own stories about the Radiant Boy, but the writer was fond of lodging guests in the, quote, haunted, unquote, room, then sneaking up at night, dressed as the boy, to frighten them. It is thus difficult to take him seriously. The Lord Littleton had his own Radiant Boy experience, possibly due to his reckless and rowdy lifestyle. He was a drunk and a wastrel, given to gambling and carousing and all that entails. And after having been kicked out of England by his family, he took refuge on the European continent, living up to the story of the prodigal son, but never coming to his senses. Eventually, however, he did come back to England and marry a fairly well-to-do widow and proceeded to spend her entire fortune in just a few months with his wild living. The outrage of his victim wife eventually caused her death a few months later. This did nothing to slow down the bad Lord Littleton as he was known. In 1779, he had his house guest at his home in London, a Mrs. Amphlett, and her three daughters ages 19, 17, and 15. Mrs. Amphlett did not let down her guard over her daughters for she knew the reputation of the bad lord. Not to be separated from his chosen targets, though, Lord Littleton had the three daughters hurried off to his country place, called Pit Place, I think it's an appropriate name, while the mother lay down for a nap one day. Oddly enough, no narrative or report of any untoward happenings involving the three girls has been given. Although if given over to one's prurient nature, nothing but horrors come to mind. That night, Littleton was in bed and he had a rather bizarre experience which he later shared with a friend in residence at the country house. After being asleep only a short time, a question here, do the Radiant Boys need a bit of peaceful prelude before showing themselves? He was awakened by what sounded like the fluttering of bird wings in his room. Looking out through his bed curtains, he said he saw a figure dressed in white. Differing from other Radiant Boy stories, though, this one vocalized his dire warning. He told the bad lord that he had but a short time left to live. Littleton tried to get more info. Is it weeks, months, maybe a year? he asked. Imagine the anvil-heavy slam on the Lord when the apparition said, Three days, and you will die. Three days later, at bedtime, a servant was fixing his lordship a glass of rhubarb and mint water. Now, I wonder what that was to alleviate. And the servant was stirring it with the toothpick. The Lord threw a fit and demanded the servant get a spoon. When the servant returned, Littleton was having a fit, possibly a choking fit. But instead of giving assistance, the servant ran for help, which arrived too late. The bad Lord was dead, and on the third day, as the radiant boy had said. A side story on Lord Littleton. 
He was to visit a close friend, a Mr. Andrews, on the day Littleton was to die, but the friend took sick and was put to bed. As he was lying abed, his bed curtains rustled, then were drawn back by Lord Littleton. There he stood, even wearing the dressing gown Littleton kept at his friend's house. Littleton told his friend, It's all over with me, Andrews. After an exchange during which Mr. Andrews accused Littleton of making a joke and even throwing a slipper at him, Littleton simply turned and walked into the man's dressing room. And Mr. Andrews followed to find out what the joke was about. But the dressing room door was bolted. When Mr. Andrews found out about his friend's death the night before, he fainted and reportedly was not himself again for three years following. So the question must be asked, although I'm not sure if it can be answered. What were or what are the Radiant Boys? Were they truly the spirits of murdered children? And if so, with the horrible fact of child murders here in the U.S., why haven't we had a few reports of Radiant Boys here? Those who apparently reported encounters with Radiant Boys said that, for the most part, while the encounters were surprising, they were incredibly positive or benign. No fear was felt. However, I'm sure that Lord Littleton might disagree with this assessment, though. Although there are lots of stories of child ghosts, I don't believe any of them have the particular proclivity to glow and appear in a wash of golden light, as one who encountered the boys said, quote, like the glory which surrounds saints' heads, unquote, in religious pictures. What are my thoughts on this subject? Do I believe these stories are real? I think they must be. As I say, could they be cautionary tales about living life too far out there or maybe taking on too much responsibility? I don't have an answer. I simply believe. And that is the crux of this whole part of life called the paranormal. You must have faith. My second story is about something called the Great Amherst Mystery. This was a, was a case of reported poltergeist activity in Amherst, Nova Scotia, Canada, between 1878 and 1879. It was investigated by an actor named Walter Hubble, who was very interested in the school of spiritualism, which was very popular at the time. He had a great interest in psychic phenomena, and he kept what he claimed was a diary of events in the house and then expanded them later into a book. The Amherst mystery centered on a young lady named Esther Cox who lived in a small house with her married sister Olive Teed, Olive's husband Daniel, and their two young children. A brother and sister of Esther and Olive also lived in the house, as did Daniel's brother John Teed making for very cramped quarters. According to Hubble's story, events began at the end of August in 1878 after Esther, who was then 18, 
was subjected to an attempted sexual assault by a male friend. This left her in great distress, and shortly after this, the physical phenomena began. There were knockings, bangings, rustlings in the night, and Esther herself began to suffer seizures in which her body visibly swelled, and she was feverish and chilled by turns. Then objects in the house started flying around. The frightened family called in a doctor. During his visit, bedclothes moved, scratching noises were heard, and the words, Esther Cox, you are mine to kill, appeared on the wall by the head of Esther's bed. The following day, the doctor administered sedatives to Esther to calm her and help her sleep, whereupon more noises and flying objects manifested themselves. Attempts to communicate with the spirit resulted in tapped responses to questions. The phenomena continued for some months and became well known locally. Visitors to the cottage, including clergymen, heard banging and knocking and witnessed moving objects often when Esther herself was under close observation. In December, Esther fell ill with diphtheria. No phenomena were observed during the two weeks she spent in bed, nor during the time she spent recuperating afterwards at the home of a married sister in Sackville, New Brunswick. However, when she returned to Amherst, the mysterious events began again, which also involved the breaking out of fires around the house. Esther herself now claimed to see the ghost, which threatened to burn the house down unless she left. In January of 1879, Esther moved in with another local family, but the manifestations around her continued and were witnessed by many people, some of whom conversed with the ghost by questioning and rapt answers. Some were curious and sympathetic. Others believed Esther herself to be responsible for the phenomena, and she met with some hostility locally. Esther was frequently slapped, pricked, and scratched by the ghost, and on one occasion was stabbed in the back with a clasp knife. Interest in the case grew as the news spread, and in late March, Esther spent some time in St. John, New Brunswick, where she was investigated by some local gentlemen with an interest in science. By now, several distinct spirits were apparently associated with Esther and communicating with onlookers via knocks and rappings. Bob Nickel, the original ghost, claimed to have been a shoemaker in life and others identified themselves as Peter Cox, who was a relative of Esther's, and Maggie Fisher. After the visit to St. John, Esther spent some time with the Van Amberg family, friends who had a peaceful farm near Amherst, and then returned to the Teeds Cottage in the summer of 1879, and everything started all over again. It was at this point that Walter Hubble arrived and began the investigation. He moved into the Teed Cottage as a lodger to investigate the phenomena. Hubble spent some weeks with Esther and her family and reported having personally witnessed moving objects, fires, and items 
appearing from nowhere and claimed that he saw phenomena occur even when Esther herself was in full view and obviously unconnected with them. He also claimed to have witnessed attacks on Esther with pins and other sharp objects and to have seen her in several of her fits of extreme swelling and pain. He communicated with the various named spirits by rapping and listed three others, Mary Fisher, Jane Nichol, and Eliza McNeil, who were also manifesting themselves as part of the events. With Hubble's questionable professional help, Esther Cox embarked on a speaking tour. Since spiritism was very popular then, her, her talks were enormously welcomed by the people and they would pay to hear her. She did meet with some hostile reactions and after she was heckled one night and a disturbance broke out, the attempt was abandoned. She returned to Amherst once more, working for a man named Arthur Davidson. But after his barn burned down, he accused her of arson and she was convicted and sentenced to four months in prison, although she was released after only one. After this, the phenomena gradually ceased for good. Esther Cox subsequently married twice, having a son by both of her husbands. She moved to Brockton, Massachusetts with her second husband and died on 8th November, 1912, at age 52. Going forward, Hubble's book was published in 1879 and it was very popular, sold about 55,000 copies. The Amherst case was also investigated by the British paranormal researcher Harroward Carrington, who took statements from surviving witnesses of the events in 1907 and published them along with a detailed account of the case in 1913. Other researchers looked at the case more critically than Hubble. In particular, Dr. Walter Prince in the Proceedings of the American Society for Psychical Research Volume 13, 1919, made a detailed case for trickery by Esther Cox while in a dissociative state. It has been suggested that certain aspects of the alleged paranormal events at Borley Rectory, sometimes dubbed the most haunted house in England, may be linked to the Amherst case. The experiences of the Foister family there in the early 1930s in particular, claims that writing appeared mysteriously on the wall resemble events in the Teed household. Reverend Foister had previously lived at Sackville, New Brunswick, and may well have been aware of the case of Esther Cox. Some of this sounds very familiar to me. Yes, indeed, it, it connects up to the Borley Rectory hauntings, but it also sounds a lot like the situation of the Bell Witch. The Bell Witch singled out John Bell and said, I'm going to kill him. All kinds of things that happened in Tennessee happened in Amherst. Could there be one particular kind of spirit that does this type of haunting? I think there may be. You may call it a demon. You may call it an imp. You may call it a gremlin. But whatever it is, I think it's out there. I think these are things that happen. That's what I have for this week. I thank you for listening. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you can hear. 
And of course, you can contact me at Terry's Mysterious Moments on Facebook or at Terry's Mysterious Moments at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your stories. I'd love to hear your comments. So that's all we have for this week. I want you to have a great week going forward. And we'll talk to you next time.